0: Welcome to NucleCast, the official podcast of the Anwar Deterrence Center. Each week, we bring you leading experts for a lively discussion on topics related to strategic nuclear deterrence. Our host is Dr. Adam Louther, Director of Strategic Programs at the National Strategic Research Institute. The views of the
1: hosts and the guests
0: are their own. Welcome back to another exciting episode of NucleCast. So I say that every time, and hopefully it's true. Of course, I'm your host, Adam Lowther, and today with us we have Professor Sam Stanton from Grove City College, uh, a friend, a graduate of one of the state of Texas's fine universities, Texas Tech, the Red Raiders, who also produced. One of my favorite quarterbacks, one Patrick Mahomes of my very own Kansas City Chiefs. So uh, if I don't like you for anything else, you're a good guy as a fellow Red Raider. Uh, so <laughs> Raider power. I want, you know, Sam, welcome to the show. Thank you. Yeah, be I, I'll Before we get going, because we're going to talk about international relations today, but I got to tell a story first. Be uh, so let me think, when was that? Maybe 2004 ish, 2005, the Raiders, the red Raiders played Alabama in the cotton bowl. 2005. Okay. And so. it was like seven or eight o'clock the night before. And I was living in Columbus, Georgia at the time. And I get a call from my uncle and he's like, Hey, guess where I'm at? And I said, Where? He's like, Dallas. I'm like, why are you in Dallas? Because he lived in Houston. He's like, I've got tickets to the Cotton Bowl tomorrow to see your Crimson Tide. And I was like, man, I wish I, wish I had tickets to that. And he's like, you know what? I got two extra tickets. And I was like, what? And he was like, yeah, you can have them if you can get here before the game. So I took a shower. Jessica and I took a shower, hopped in the car and drove from Columbus, Georgia and got to Dallas like an hour before the game started and went to that Cotton Bowl. And then, you know, Alabama won at the very end of the game on a field goal and then hopped in the car and drove back to Columbus overnight, got there at like 3 o'clock in the morning and then went to work the next day. That's what Alabama fans do. (laughs) So we've digressed. Now, Sam, we're here to talk about Theories of international relations. There's a lot going on in the world with Russia, China, Iran, North Korea. The Middle East still has a lot going on. And so I thought the listeners could benefit. We've never really talked about this before. But the, the field of international relations has some large theories that they think, different schools of thought, that they think help to explain why nations do what they do and how we can sort of understand the interplay of geopolitics. And you as an IR professor of international relations are, you know, this is sort of, this is your jam. And so we thought you'd be a great person to have come on and explain these schools of thought. So with that, where do you want to start?
1: All right, schools of thought or theories of international relations. Um, first, let's make sure we're understanding when we're talking about a theory. A theory is not a perfect picture of reality. When you think about theories, think about if you are in a room and this room has several different windows you can look out of. If you look out of one window, there are things that you're going to be able to see looking out that one window that you cannot see looking out of another window. And so theories look at the world, allow us to look at the world in in some specific and limited ways to explain behavior. And so that is why when we're looking at theories, each theory would explain the behavior that we're looking at, that we're viewing differently. And why we can't necessarily say that this theory is right, that theory is wrong, because all of them are looking at the same situation. They're just looking at it through a different set of parameters, those frames that make the window. Now... The perhaps oldest and, and to me, dearest of those theories is realism. Uh, realism, as a, as a theory of international relations, considers that the states are the primary actors in the system. So when it starts looking... One of the things that it's looking at is the behavior of states. It's not necessarily thinking about the behavior of individual politicians in the system, of multinational organizations in the system, whether those are, you know, things like the United Nations that are state sponsored, state member institutions, what we call international organizations or non-governmental organizations, which can be comprised of people from all over the world that decide to make the organization. You know, realism says, no, those really aren't important for us to focus on. We need to focus on the behavior of states. Yeah. Now, when, you, when you're focusing then only on the behavior of states, you've got to think, what are the the underlying assumptions about why we should expect certain behaviors out of states? Why should, when we start thinking state A will do X because of what states B, C, and D are doing, well, what's underlying that? First, you know, the structure of the system you know the the overarching structure of the system is anarchic right for the realist there's no higher authority in the international system than the states themselves which means that as a state you can't pick up the phone and dial 911 right if if something bad is happening to you There is nobody else ultimately for you to rely upon for dealing with that situation than yourself. And because of that, that that the system is anarchic and it's a self-help system, states are self-interested. States, because they are self-interested, seek to survive. And if you want to survive in the international system, what do you have to do? You've got to develop power, strength. You've got to use the capabilities that you have, the resources that you have as a as a state. Whatever is available to you within that country: its population, its natural resources, and the capabilities that have been developed, the economic capabilities the military capabilities, all of that. You're using that to do the things that you believe are going to be necessary to ensure your survival in the international system. That includes making alliances. It includes how you organize your national security at the level of creating defense for yourself.
0: So it's it's not that... that- The self-help seeking countries that are primarily interested in survival, which is in many respects a lot what we think about politicians, their self-help, you know, and they care about re-election. It's not that, that international organizations have zero impact or don't matter in any way or alliances, for example, which it's that they, that without sort of a sovereign global government that states themselves have to rely on their friends, their own ability, the things that they do, who they team up with, how they develop a good economy or a bad economy, what kind of military capability they can. And it's not that, you know, within international relations, you've got, you know, classical realists who say, you know, leaders of nations matter or structural realist, or which I'm sure you're going to talk about, but there's all these sort of variations on that theme.
1: Right. Yeah. There, there are an awful lot of variations on this. When I'm making these statements that I'm making right now about realism and I'm talking about realism in general. Sure. Uh, because and we can get off in, Thinking about neostructural realism or neorealism, offensive and defensive realism, classical realism, neoclassical realism, and all of these individual variants, right? So, for instance, offensive versus defensive realism, both the offensive and the defensive realist theories see the world in that same lens, anarchic, seeking security we make alliances, we create organizations to manage things for us. But at the end of the day, states still have to be responsible for themselves. Yeah. The offensive realist says, how do you produce the greatest amount of security for you? By going out and doing those things to make sure that you have the uh, as much offensive capacity for securing yourself as possible versus the defensive realist that thinks we can create more alliances, structures, we can do things that enhance our ability to defend ourselves against other states and against potential enemies rather than pursuing a purely offensive sort of strategy for creating that security and defense for ourselves.
0: Now... just for the listeners who are going to say, ah, geez, man, if you can't explain it, if you can't get it right, then who, who cares about these theories? And I, I, I guess I would ask you and sort of my take on it is, is that in social sciences and we're social scientists, human behavior is incredibly hard to explain. It's not like in, you know, many, hard sciences where you can replicate something over and over and over and get the exact same results because as soon as humans realize that you're trying to measure them they act differently on purpose and so the idea of a theory in international relations is what gives you the greatest ability to try to understand and explain what's happening and so if a 70% solution or 70% explanation is the best you can get or an 80% and so you're always trying to get that highest percentage of explanatory power with sort of the, the least amount of variables. Am I? Is that a good explanation or would you, would you offer something different? Well,
1: I think you're on track. Right there with the the fact we're dealing with human subjects and human subjects are messy. You know, it's not like doing a medical experiment where I get to control the inputs and find out exactly what the output is at the end of the day. If I could put this amount of this controlled substance into their system to see how it affects their behavior. I don't get to control that as a social scientist right as a social scientist my study of behavior is simply what i am able to observe of human behavior and then i have to figure out whether or not i can quantify those observations and thus mechanically val- take the value of those observations to see if I can make inferences about the population that I'm looking at as a whole. Or I have to be able to verbally explain that to you to the best of my ability. And again, yes, it's messy. At best, at best, when we're looking at this and making predictions and testing human behavior uh, as social scientists, at our best, we can probably hope and hold ourselves to saying, I want to be 90%, 90, 95% confident that what I am telling you can be held to be generally true in the population that I'm studying, yeah. that I'm trying to understand. So if I'm trying to understand the behavior of states, right, I'm going to look at these states in a way that allows me to say I can predict that state A will do X, that that all states, that any of these states, we should expect the states in general to do X. Right. And I'm going to try to find ways to test that based on these theoretical assumptions that I'm holding to. So as a realist, if I'm saying I expect states to do to take some course of action because it allows them to make themselves more secure. Right. right? And ultimately, they're concerned about that security. So states are going to do I'm going to predict that states are going to do X because doing this under with these underlying assumptions would produce the greatest amount of security for them.
0: And in realism, security is what we're after.
1: Yeah, security is the big thing. At the end of the day, balances of security through alliances, through the growth of individual power, You know, that's what it's all about for the realist at the end of the day. I would argue that it's your security of your state. You want to survive. And if we understand that all states want to survive, then we can look at all of the states and say, okay, states with this range of capabilities are likely to take these actions because taking these actions are in line with the capabilities that they possess And they believe that taking these actions will produce the greatest amount of security for themselves.
0: Now, it's that time in the show where we have to take a quick break. So you're listening to NucleCast. We're talking with Professor Sam Stanton, and we'll be right back. This episode of NuclearCast is brought to you by the AMLA Deterrence Center, whose mission is to educate Americans about the nuclear enterprise and strategic deterrence. back and we're talking to professor sam stanton about theories of international relations now sam we've been talking about realism thus far but i have a feeling there's an alternative school of thought
1: (laughs) well there is an alternative the the primary alternative school of thought is liberalism Um, occasionally we'll see people refer to this calling it idealism Mm -hmm. Um, but we're talking about with liberalism is a a change in that window that we're looking at, right? Sure. Looking at the window of liberalism, they see that the world in terms of a multiple num- a multiplicity of actors that are important to the international system,
0: not just states.
1: So- not just states here. The within liberalism, we're looking at the international organizations. We're looking at multinational corporations. Another key difference when we're thinking about this, even at the level of looking at the states, in realism, the state is a unit is a, is a singular actor. In liberalism, the state is not a unitary actor. So you can expect different behaviors out of states depending upon what what uh, area of function what area of consideration we're talking about because this might be for these states a judicial function a legislative function or an executive function and so a different part of the state takes leadership ownership of state action in that particular area of consideration.
0: So let me ask you, it's a much
1: more complex theory in terms of its actors and the expected behaviors of actors than realism is.
0: So if, if I were to go back to realism and I were to say, You know, uh, China led by the Chinese Communist Party, social democracies in Europe, presidential democracy in the United States, an authoritarian regime in, say, Latin America. It doesn't matter who's running the government or what type of government it is. That country inevitably is going to seek security. But with liberalism, you're saying that there are other things at play that are going to lead that state to act in whatever way it acts.
1: Exactly. Yeah, for, for realists, the, the nature of the state, that type of government that you have, it doesn't matter. Okay. Because ultimately all the states are seeking security. For liberalism, the type of state does matter. And liberalism seeks to create a situation through the use of international organizations, through the use of pressure from states to spread ideals, to spread those classical liberal values in the world. And as a general rule, most liberals believe that some forms of democracy parliamentary, presidential, that that part of it doesn't matter as much, but that generally that there's, if they have form of democracy, that that produces the greatest opportunity for spreading the ideals and the values in this world that are going to generate harmony and peace between the actors and mitigate against the fact that, you know, that the system is anarchic because so liberalism doesn't deny that, that the system's anarchic. Ultimately, there is still no higher authority than the states themselves. But if the states are democratic in their form, and if we create the right international organizations managing the right rules and procedures of interaction in the state, between states and between other actors in the international system, that we can create a system that allows the greatest amount of stability, peace, and human flourishing.
0: So if I hear you correct, if I think back to that famous quote in Thucydides uh, on the island of Melos, where the Athenians say the strong do what they will, the weak do what they must, that would be a, sort of a, the epitome of, of realism. And realism would, would be a much more sort of pessimistic view of the world. And from what you're saying about idealism, idealism is, is much more optimistic about the realm of the possible. Am I reading that right?
1: You are reading that correctly, Adam. The, The liberal is much more optimistic about human nature and about the effects of human nature on our political and social and economic organization and the ability to overcome our differences, our relative differences in position. Um, when you think about realism where security matters right security really matters relative position is very very important how powerful am i relative to other states for the for liberals you know we want everybody liberals want everybody to gain absolutely they're more interested in the absolute position that we are in in the world rather than the relative positions we are in and yes the 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 real the liberal the idealist is much more optimistic in this regard about human nature and about how we can overcome our differences our disagreements and how we can make security how we can make economic growth and all of these things not be a zero-sum game
0: so then for the deterrence guy and for the you know for a, a group of folks that is primarily interested in you know nuclear weapons nuclear deterrence it would seem that you know from from the lens of a realist you can understand why countries like north korea iran would seek nuclear weapons because in a relative position, they're far weaker than the United States, their adversary. And so, you know, seeking nuclear arms makes sense from a realist perspective, but then from, yes, it does. From for the idealist, the idealist is going to be the one seeking disarmament.
1: As a general rule and a general statement, I would say you're absolutely right. Right. Uh, now, I've been studying international relations theories and studying international security issues now for you know, almost 30 years, and I have yet to come across a realist who says we need to disarm the world. Yeah,
0: that that would seem no. pretty consistent. And it also go, but it, but it also goes back to what you had mentioned earlier about the, for those that hold these varying schools of thought, the individual who thinks about it sees the world differently where the individual realist is sort of pessimistic and sees danger in the world. The liberal or idealist sees the opportunity for, you know, widespread peace.
1: Yeah, for for the liberal, the the opportunity for for widespread peace, it's there. We have to manage the system. We have to create the system that allows that reality to happen. Sure. Um,
0: now, before we run out of time, yeah. is there is there another school of thought in international relations? I know these are the the big two but are there alternatives that maybe are not quite as prominent?
1: Uh, there are. Um, you know, We can look at different radical theories, such as Marxism even, right? Uh, Marxism as a radical theory of international relations says, hey, you, you idealists, you, you realists, you've got it. Both of you have it wrong. The, the system isn't really anarchic the system is under the control of that bourgeoisie, that Ubermensch class. International capitalism, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, that, that international capitalism thing is going on and it's denying everybody else out here in the world what is rightfully theirs in terms of earning potential, in terms of growth potential. And if we would just get rid of all the capitalism in the world, then the world would be a great place. Hey, what's interesting is is that you know you got to remember that with Marxism there are cycles that you have to go through and over time you finally attain that utopian view of everybody getting along and from doing each what supposed to do just because they should from
0: each according to his ability and to each according to his need is that not the is that that's what Karl Marx said yeah. I think.
1: Yeah, but to get there first, you have to go through socialism and communism. And the socialists and communists, when they look at the world, say, well, in order to create this classless world, this governmentless world, we, we've got to first defeat the agents of global capitalism. Democratic states... States that have free market economic practices, those are agents of global capitalism and they have to be destroyed. And so it's funny at that stage of their socialist communist evolution, those states that are pursuing a Marxist ideology are just as likely to pursue aggressive security and aggressive policies in the world, developing weapon systems, you know um, Stalin argued vehemently that you couldn't trust just the United States to have nuclear weapons because if the United States alone had nuclear weapons, then there was no way that you could attain those utopian heights of Marxism because the United States was simply a tool of the world capitalist class.
0: Gotcha. Gotcha. And, and before we run out of time, are those the three main schools of thought, or is there?
1: Uh, constructivism exists out there, relatively new. Constructivism, I mean, we're talking about something that really is taken off as a social theory of understanding uh, the behavior of governments, the behavior of actors in the international system in really the last 25, 20, 25 to 30 years. Um, the other theories date 100, 100 years plus. This one is, you know, in the last 30 years, trying to understand that all understandings of security, all understandings of What the international system looks like is developed around meaning attributed to that by actors in the system, by prominent actors in the system, creating norms of understanding, creating definitions of the terms, and coming to an understanding that this is what we mean if we say security. This is what we mean right now if we say anarchy. But those things are moving targets. We can recreate meaning you know, in the in the same way that you think about postmodernist language games. You have that same sort of movement of meaning and reifying and reimagining of meaning and redefining of terms over time and at any specific moment that the recognized masters of that game feel that it's necessary for redefining it at that moment. So
0: if I can summarize constructivism based on what you said, it's much like the name is that it's all constructed. And so therefore, you know who we see as an adversary or who we see as a friend or who we see as us versus them, that that's all just constructed and that if yes it's
1: all a social construction and that if
0: we want to recreate the whole system we essentially create new language and you know those who we thought of as the they the adversary they can all of a sudden become a us and an ally yes all uh, right
1: that that's the way it works with constructivism
0: so realism makes it difficult so then realism is it's it's pessimistic about the world and it's focused on how do I promote security? Idealism is optimistic about the world and it's focused on how do we bring peace through, you know, collaborative effort across national boundaries. And then Marxism says, Hey, there's this global, Uh, capitalist class that is oppressing the masses, the proletariat, and we have to get rid of it so we can have a utopian stateless society. And then constructivism says, you're all wrong. You've just created these languages of, of how the system works and who's good and who's bad. And if you get rid of those and we could ultimately achieve, you know, peace or whatever by virtue of, the language we use and how we include or exclude my, my kids, I've got two little kids and they say disclude whom you disclude. Uh, and therefore that's, that's what determines there. So as you as an IR scholar, think about it as we wrap up, cause we're, we're out of time. Is there one theory and I'll let you have the last word here that you think has been, the most successful, you know, in relative terms, not absolute, nobody's, none of these theories are perfect by any stretch, but has been sort of more right than wrong in explaining how international relations and history work.
1: If I'm asked which one I think is doing the best job of explaining, I, I go back to realism. Um, you know, You want to understand why Russia is trying to do what Russia is trying to do right now in Ukraine and why China is trying to do what China wants to do in changing the liberal international order and create one in their own vision? Why do they want to create a system in their own vision? Because that will make them more powerful, more secure, And so I think realism at the end of the day does the best job of explaining how we seek security and what we do in the international arena as states.
0: All right. Well, thanks for joining us, Sam Stanton, as always. Thank you for having me, Adam. I appreciate you coming on and sharing some of that professorial wisdom about theories of international relations. And, of course, we want to thank you, the listeners. So now... You've Now that everybody who's out there listening has had their international relations lesson for the day, you can now go read the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, whatever you read, and you can read it through the lenses of realism, idealism, Marxism, constructivism, and make your own judgments. So with that, we thank you. Hey, thank you. Well, we just had a great conversation with Sam Stanton. And for those who are not IR scholars, you know, you can be like, ah, oh, geez, you know, what is this all about? But, I, you know, it it helps to, to give you sort of like a lens to look at what's going on in the world and to try to understand why Russia and China are doing what they're doing. And, and you know, by and large, that's sort of what international relations seeks to do is to help you understand why states do what they do. And so hopefully, you know, you found that interesting. I, I found it interesting. And it's it's good to sort of review what these main schools of thought actually think. And so I, I, I'm, I'm glad Sam was on so that we, uh, you know, sort of put that in the front of our minds. And hopefully you, you found it interesting as well. This has been a production of the ANWA Deterrence Center. Our executive producer is Kimberly Cherrington. And this episode has been engineered and mixed by David Brunthal. Follow the show on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at Nuclecast. Listen, follow, and review the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.